Amen. Thank you, Sharon. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. As you're turning there, I read recently about um, part of the way that Jeff Bezos is spending his fortune. You might be interested to learn this. By the way, Bezos kind of alternates between the number one and the number two richest individual in the world. Uh, He, of course, uh, founded Amazon and continues to make an incredible amount of money from that. And the questions have been going out. How is he going to spend all this accumulated wealth? You know, the questions about 15, 20 years ago uh, were the same with uh, Microsoft founder Bill Gates. He was building up all this money. How is he going to spend it? Well, now the Gates are almost as well known for their philanthropy as they are for their business acumen. Bezos hasn't quite crossed into that philanthropic part of his life yet, but he has invested $42 million in the 10,000-year clock. I wonder if you've heard of the 10,000-year clock. It's 500 feet tall. It's actually being constructed right now. It's not completed. It's buried in a mountain. Somewhere in West Texas, I almost said the middle of nowhere in West Texas, but we might have some West Texas people in the room uh, here from Pine Cove, I don't know. It is solar powered. It's designed to last for 10,000 years, thus the name. It will tick not once every second, but once every year. It will move its sentry hand once every 100 years. My favorite part is it, it actually has a cuckoo. It is a cuckoo clock, and it will send the cuckoo out once a millennia. All right, every thousand years, the little bird gets a chance to come out of its cage. Uh, It's the brainchild of a group called the Long Now Foundation. Here's their mission. To foster long-term thinking and responsibility in the framework of the next 10,000 years. So the Long Now Foundation exists to essentially remind us that Eternity is a long time. Now, they're coming from a secular perspective. And from their perspective, they're saying, listen, we, we've got our, our you know, 70 years, our 80 years, our 90 years, however long uh, we live on this planet. But long, long, long after we're gone, the earth's going to continue. Society's going to continue, hopefully. And this clock is there to symbolically remind us that our actions now have implications for the long now. For a long, long time. I think, as I read about the clock again this week, it's a fascinating illustration of Ecclesiastes, particularly Ecclesiastes verse 11 of chapter 3. And, and Sharon just read that. God has set eternity in the heart of man. You know, Mandy reminded us earlier, we're finite creatures, but there's something infinite that we were made for. And, and I think this is stirring in the heart of even someone like Jeff Bezos, who doesn't even necessarily know where this eternal longing comes from. Investing his fortune in a 10,000-year clock, isn't that interesting? I want us to think about the interesting relationship that human beings have with time. Time is the one thing we say we can't live without. Most of us would trade money for time, and we do that all the time. You know, no pun intended, right? We trade money for extra time. We hire out things that we could do, but they take too long. So we spend money so that others will do them to save us time. How do we spend our time is the question that we're constantly fretting over. We often find ourselves saying, if I only had more time, or there's just not enough time in the day, or there's not enough time in life, or our kids are growing up so fast. What happened all the time? We have this love-hate relationship with time. We can't imagine life without it, but we're constantly doing battle with it. The passage this morning that we're going to 
talk through and learn from really dives down deep into the essence of time, and it forces us to ask questions about time. What is it actually? Who created it actually? How much of it can we control? How much of it is out of our control, and how do we feel about that reality? Now, to study Ecclesiastes, and we've kind of talked about this, but let me review a little bit of where we've been. To study Ecclesiastes is to take a philosophical journey with a fascinating mind. We believe this is the voice of Solomon that's speaking. If it wasn't literally his pen that wrote it, it was someone that wrote it later reflecting on his life, reflecting on his wisdom. So it's about Solomon. And, and uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the pleasures of life and how he pursued pleasures as far as they could take him to see if there was any meaning for him, any ultimate significance in it. Last week, if you were here, Lloyd talked about work, Lloyd talked about wisdom, and he did a wonderful job of kind of bringing to the forefront one of the most important themes in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is death. Now, for those of you that were here last week, I just want to note for the record, all right, two weeks ago I brought you chocolates, last week Lloyd brought you the worldwide death clock. Okay, just, you know, keep that in mind as we go through this. For if you weren't here, he literally had in the center of the screen this, this, this clock, or it wasn't actually a clock, it was, it was a counter. And, and every, what is it, every second, two people die across the world. So from the start of the service to the end of the service, there were thousands of people that died, and you saw that number just streaming right in front. I'm sure it distracted some of you here in the worship service, but it was sort of designed to because we don't think enough about death. And that's one of Solomon's points. In fact, Ecclesiastes, think about it this way, is almost a written record of this wise, rich, wealthy, powerful man's epic battle against death. And Solomon, despite all his wisdom and power and wealth, he cannot find his way around death. He he cannot go over it. He cannot go around it. He cannot go under it. He realizes that it's the one thing it's ultimately going to get him. He doesn't have the answer to it. In chapter 3, he dives right into the heart of death by talking about eternity and finiteness. And we get this poem that we're all fairly familiar with, most of us anyway, verses 1 through 8, that Sharon read, if you're looking at it in your text, verses 1 through 8 of Ecclesiastes 3 forms a poem. It's often read at funeral services. It reminds us that God's in control, we're not. You know, there's a time for this, there's a time for that. It, it kind of has this soothing and calming sort of sense in the back and forth motion of the poem. Another way it's known, uh, raise your hand if you have a certain song going through your head right now by the birds. Yeah, I saw some hands on This is kind of a, like a name your age kind of moment, right? <laughs> we were talking in the green room earlier, and we had a, a young, a particular young man that's on our drums this morning, right? He just graduated from high school, and he's like, what is turn, turn, turn? <laughs> and we're like, oh, come on. Uh, now, whether you know the song, don't know the song, you're probably familiar with some of the verses that Sharon read for us earlier. We're going to go back through them, and we're going to start with the thesis statement of the passage, which is in verse 1. There's an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. So you want to know the big idea of the poem that's going to follow in the, the verses? That's it right there. There's an appointed time for everything, a time for every event under heaven. And then the next seven verses or so are just going to tell you some examples. There's a time for this and a time for that. There's a time for this and a time for that. And what's interesting is Solomon composes this poem with 28 items and he puts them in sets of two each. So there are 14 pairs of contrasting items. And it's his way of saying everything on earth, everything under the sun is included. So we use a a similar literary technique when we say things like he looked high and low. 
What does that actually mean? Did he like literally like, you know, do this and then do this and say, I'm done searching? No. High and low means he looked everywhere that he knew to look. Here's another one that we'll use sometime. She moved heaven and earth. It's a figurative expression. It means she did all that she could do. She moved heaven and earth. Here's what Solomon is saying. Everything is covered in these 14 pairs of contrasting items and the rhythmic motion that it creates. A time for this, a time for that. A time for this, a time for that. Think of a pendulum swinging in a grandfather clock. Or maybe just think of the tick, tick, ticking of a clock. I don't know why you'd be thinking of that right now but just imagine now I want to read one through eight as a section because it's poetry and poetry is a form of art and we're going to analyze it we're going to break it down we're going to do all that like we typically do you know with our expository teaching but I don't want you to miss the beauty of it poetry is meant to sort of be taken in as a whole and so I want to look at it as a whole and then talk about it as a whole before we Break it down and analyze. So let me go back through one last time and read this poem. There is a pointed time for everything, verse 1. There is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. That's the poem, and the verses that come after are going to explain the poem. But before we get there, let's talk about this poem itself. I want to give four observations about the verses that I just read. And kind of similarly to Solomon, I put them in two sets of two. They kind of go together in pairs. So here's the first observation. There is beauty in the rhythms of life. The back and forth motion of life that Solomon is calling our attention to. There's beauty in it. God made the world to have a cadence. Like the physical world around us has a rhythm. It has a pattern. It has a a cadence. Think of it this way. Creation is more like poetry than it is prose. And I want to give you some examples. Um, Years, seasons, days. We didn't invent time. And mankind didn't come up with 365 and one-fourth days. Where did that come from? That's the length of time it takes our Earth to complete a full orbit around our sun. Mankind didn't come up with a 24-hour day. That's the time it takes our Earth to complete one spin around its axis. The sun rises, the sun sets. The seasons go from spring to summer to autumn, to winter, back to spring again as the earth orbits the sun. The tide goes out. The tide comes in according to the gravitational pull associated with the moon and and other natural factors. Here's the point is we live in this rhythmic system all around us. We live in this 
cadence-filled creation. Even in Genesis chapter 1, a different author now than Ecclesiastes, Moses is noting the rhythm, almost the poetry of God's creation when he says, God said and there was evening, morning, the first day. Then God said and there was evening, morning, the second day. You hear the rhythm, you hear the flow. God said and there was evening, morning, the third day. So keep Genesis 1 in mind, keep Ecclesiastes 3 in mind, and I would say it this way, there is a rhythm and a cadence to the creation all around us. And to the degree that we're able to enter into that rhythm and sort of live within it rather than fighting the rhythms of life, part of Solomon's point is there's wisdom and even beauty in those rhythms. Um, I think about this grandfather clock analogy, and I'm going to use this throughout the message. All right, there's a a purpose to the annoying sound that you're hearing in the background, okay? If you imagine God creates the earth like this intricate grandfather clock and then puts us inside of it to live within the rhythms. Now, I'm not saying the clock analogy where, you know, God wound up the clock and then he's nowhere to be found. That's not true. God's everywhere to be found. God's in his creation. God's active in his creation. But the earth itself, even the universe itself, does have a rhythm, does have a cadence. The gears all fit together. The dials spin. Everything's going and coming and coming and going and going and coming in seasons and months and days and years. You and I will long be gone in the cycle will continue and continue. That's Solomon's point, and there's beauty in all of that. It's almost like there's intentionality in the design. You think? I think so. God's rhythms shape our lives, and there's beauty in that. That's the first observation from this poem. The second observation goes with it, but provides a contrast on the other side of the pendulum swing. There is also much heartache in the rhythms of life. There's beauty in the rhythms. There's heartache in the rhythms. Remember Solomon's perspective throughout this book? He calls it life under the sun. It means life in a fallen, broken creation. The book is all about Solomon's exploration where he literally is going as far as he can go as a human being, pressing up against the walls of a broken creation. And he's saying, there's no meaning here. There's no meaning here. There's no meaning here. Here, he's exploring a cursed world. Now, notice how many of the activities, even in this kind of beautiful rhythmic poem, are downers, are are evidences of the broken creation, not the holistic creation that God originally created. Listen to all the things, I'm going to read them, that would have not existed before sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. Dying, number one. Killing, tearing down, weeping, mourning, giving up, throwing away, tearing apart, hating, going to war. Those are all parts of a broken world. And so Solomon is saying, look, it's up and it's down. It's down and it's up. It goes back and forth, back and forth. And he's saying God's in control of it all. So in other words, even in a broken, fallen creation, God is still on the throne. God is still sovereign. And Romans 8, he is working all things together for the good of those who know him and are called according to his purposes. However, we must not miss the fact there is heartache in a fallen, broken creation. Remember a couple of weeks back in the introduction to this book, we gave you two interpretive lenses 
through which you need to read this book. In other words, you don't forget the fact. The first one was Ecclesiastes was written through the lens of a fallen creation, through the lens of brokenness. And if you miss that, then you'll start to get confused theologically when you read about hating. There's a time to hate, really? Death? Killing? There's a time for those things, really? Well, within the context of this fallen, broken creation, as we await redemption, God is working all things together for good. Now, the poem, because of this harder side to it, this, this sort of negative in it, it's actually a, a deeper and more difficult poem than most people think. And so, you, you know, you read it at a funeral to sort of kind of make yourself feel better or whatever, but, but don't miss the fact that this poem is actually harsh in many ways. It's pointing out the flaws and the pain points of creation. Solomon even seems to be understating through all this. He's kind of pointing to the idea that you have no control over the ebbs and flows of life. Being born and dying happens to you. Being at peace, going to war, out of your control for the most part. We don't choose the time of our tears and the time of our dancing. Solomon seems to be reminding us of this. Now, that's not to say that you don't have the opportunity to shape and create as being made in the image of God, but by and large, we're part of a greater narrative in this creation, living inside this tick-tocking grandfather clock that God's in control of, not you. So that's the second observation. Not only is there a lot of beauty in the rhythms of life, there's also a lot of heartache in the rhythms of life. Let's go two more observations that also go together. So this is observation number three. Many of the activities in life relate to our connectedness as human beings. Many of the activities of life relate to our connectedness as human beings. Um, This is not a solo act. This is not a a one-man or one-woman drama that you are living in. It's not all about you. So many of these things in this poem are about your relationships with other people. Listen to the way that David Gibson wrote it. Um, Gibson wrote a a very helpful and short commentary on Ecclesiastes uh, called Living Life Backwards, by the way, if you're interested in that, it's helpful. Here's what he wrote about uh, this idea. We are profoundly relational beings and most of the seasons of our lives are taken up with navigating the different stages of our relationships and the effects they have on us. Let me pause in the quote and I'll come back to it. What what he's saying here is that your your relationships define your seasons. So when you're born, your season is defined by your relationships with your nuclear family, your parents, your siblings. That's how you identify and understand your place in the world. Then you get older and you leave the home and now the season of life is probably probably defined by your friendships more than anything else. Then you get married, potentially, if, if you do get married, and your life then becomes about that union. Then possibly you have children, and then your life, in a sense, becomes about that. Now, obviously, not your ultimate life, but, you know, for all practical purposes. Then you go on, perhaps you have grandchildren, or maybe you never get married and your friends change. You see, the people that you're in relationship with define the various seasons of your life. Now, let me finish the quote. This is where it gets profound in in my perspective. He writes this. We dance at a wedding and later mourn the loss of the one we danced with. We laugh together and later weep for what the people we used to laugh with have done to us. We grow to love some people We come to hate others. So what he's saying here, and what Solomon, I believe, is saying, is God made us relational 
creatures. And we feel that through the seasons of life. I'd say it this way. The container of our relationships holds for us most the, the, the most sweet and the most bitter moments of our lives. The container of our relationships essentially gives us the most fulfillment and the most heartache that we will have in our lives. And because of the potential for loss in this vulnerable area, what we tend to do is self-protect. We tend to all take a step back from relationships, right? Something starts getting too close, our, our, our pain radar comes out and we shut down. And we do that in different ways. Some of you shut down, some of you lash out, but we all tend to self-protect. And what the gospel will call us to, I don't want to get to the end of my message too soon, but what the gospel will call us to is to be able to transcend, go move beyond our own self-protection. How are we going to do that? Not without some external help. And we'll get to that at the end. For now, it's enough to remember that God made us to be relational creatures and the seasons of our lives are largely defined by and engaged with our relationships. The fourth observation. Many of life's activities relate to our work. So you got relationships on one end, you got work on the other end. Obviously, those are not mutually exclusive. But notice all the hustle and bustle of human activity in this poem. It's a busy poem. Planting and uprooting. Tearing down, building up. Throwing stones, gathering stones. Tearing apart, sewing together, etc. Your work falls in here too. Although you may not recognize it. All the work we do as human beings, um, we create, we consume, we plan, we execute, we clean, we rearrange, we create problems, we solve problems. All the work we do as human beings is part of an ebb and flow of human activity on the planet. You know, you ever looked at an ant hill and you're watching all these ants coming and going? And it's like, what are they actually doing? And some of them are, you know, carrying things and others are scouts and these things. And you're looking at that. I, I have a picture. This is what our planet's like. We're all just sort of scurrying around, coming and going. And you think you have the next big thing, you know, and then 12 months later, someone else has the next big thing. And you make money, you lose money. You have a job, you lose a job. There's an ebb and flow to work as well. And it's significant. Work is important. Now, what's interesting, though, is Solomon is going to immediately follow his beautiful poem with this pretty stark question in verses 9 to 10 related to our work. And so I want you to see that. So let's move on now to Solomon's commentary about his own poem. Let's look at verse 9. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? Verse 10. I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. What Solomon is doing is he's asking a rhetorical question, right? You know, rhetorical question. You already know the answer to this question. If you've been reading Ecclesiastes, you know the answer to the question. What profit is there? Is there anything to gain? The answer is no. Solomon told us the answer in the first few verses of the whole book. Vanity, he says meaningless or vapor all of it everything is vanity all of it is a vapor there is no profit there's no permanent lasting gain for human beings living under the sun because we all face the same fate this is where death re-enters the picture because you might be thinking what are you talking about there's no profit look at a guy like jeff bezos he's changed the world and he could change the world again with all the billions of dollars that he's earned if he puts it to the right use. What do you mean there's no profit? Don't forget something that Lloyd said last week. You can spend your whole life 
being very successful, but you're still going to have the same fate as the beggar, the same fate as the lazy person, the same fate as anyone else. You could store up this wonderful nest egg. You could have a crazy good inheritance that you give to your kids. And as far as you know, as soon as you're done, it could be squandered within the first year. It could vanish. It could be gone. It's all temporal, you see. So Solomon's wrestling with this, and he's saying, if death is the end for everyone, is there any profit? Is there any long-term gain? Can anything you do with all your work and all your toil and all the tick-tocking of all the energy and the anthill and all this, is it going to make any lasting effort if everyone has the same fate? At the end of the day, Solomon is saying there is no profit. Someone has cynically stated that what you have here in Ecclesiastes 3 in this poem 28 statements consisting of 14 pluses and 14 minuses, which if you add them up, equals a big fat zero. And that seems to be Solomon's point. What an inspiring teacher this guy is. He's like, death is the great equalizer, right? Earn all you want, it's all gonna go. It's all going to go. You can't take it with you, et cetera, et cetera. Here's Solomon's perspective on time, all right? Despite the beauty of it, the orderliness of the rhythms, if there's nothing for us to gain at the end, if the ticking of time is just that, and we're just spending our 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years toiling under the sun with no gain, then we're no closer than where we started from, which is dust, you think I'm overstating it, just glance down to verse 20 for just a second. We won't put it on the screen, but if you have your Bible open. Same passage, we won't get to it today, we'll get to it next week. All go to the same place, verse 20. All came from the dust, and all returned to the dust. Now, I want to get back because verse 11 that we haven't yet uh, dug into is one of the most important verses in the entire book. And uh, it's going to seem like the news is going to get better in verse 11, but it's actually going to get worse. All right, so just prepare you for that. Um, and then, of course, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna point to some hope. We're going to point to some hope before we send you out of here today. But let's get first the bad news in verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. All right, we're going to leave that verse on the screen for five or six minutes as, as I break it down phrase by phrase. It doesn't seem like bad news, but I want you to understand Solomon is intending this in a, in a negative way. Let's break it down uh, phrase by phrase. He's made everything appropriate in its time. This is a restatement of his thesis for the whole passage. It goes back to chapter 3, verse 1. There's a season for everything. Everything fits. Now, some of your translations, instead of appropriate, will say beautiful. That actually is a literal. Beautiful is the literal word that's used in the Hebrew, but in the context, text here, it also means it's appropriate. In other words, it fits. So there's beauty. Everything fits. Think about the clock again. It's like an engineer can appreciate a beautifully designed clock. Everything is exactly where it's meant to be. And so Solomon is saying, from God's perspective, there's beauty in the pattern. There's beauty in the pattern. Now that's starting out good news. And then he's going to get to this next part. He has also set eternity in their heart. Well, who's the they? The they is human beings. Right, and that's clear from the next phrase, which we'll get to in a minute. But let's zero in on this phrase because it's very important. What does it mean that we have eternity in our hearts? 
Well, let's start with the word heart. All right? Heart is not the emotional center or the romantic center. That's not how the Hebrews understood it, or the Greeks, by the way, in, in Greek, in New Testament either. Heart is the core of your person. Heart is like who you are at your core. Heart is the whole person. Now, eternity, you have eternity in your core, eternity in your true core person. Eternity means exactly what you think it means. It's, it's a great translation in English. It means uh, um, an unlimited duration of time. Or another way to think about it is life with no regard to time. So you hear that tick, tick, ticking that you can't get out of your head? What would it feel like to actually live without regard to time? nothing's going to end. You don't have to rush. You don't have to say, oh, you know, life's short. Take it in while I have it. You don't have to say, oh, no, I'm getting old. Let me spend money and effort and energy to kind of turn back the clock of time. What would it look like to live without regard to time? You, you, you have that in you, this desire for eternity. Another way to think about it is life outside of time. That's eternity. Now, your brain goes in a little bit of a different direction because here's what Solomon is saying. At the core of every human being is a desire to climb outside of the grandfather clock that you are put in and live with God outside of time. That's what essentially Solomon is saying. He's put eternity in their heart. Now, this is a universal longing. This was not just a Hebrew longing. This is not just a Christian longing. This is a human longing. It explains our fear of dying as human beings, I believe. It explains our fight against aging and you know, the, the billion-dollar industry that anti-aging is. It explains uh, the metaphorical search for the fountain of youth, which, by the way, you kind of find that theme. It, cross, it transcends cultures. It explains, I believe... Jeff Bezos spending a good chunk of his fortune on a 10,000-year clock. Let's get more personal. I think this eternal longing in us explains our grief at funerals, explains our sentimental wishing that our kids would never grow up sometimes. It explains the lump in our throats when we look at certain photographs or videos of time long gone. God has put eternity, he has set eternity in our hearts, in our core person. And then we get to this trick at the end. We get to the bad news, which is the last phrase of the verse, yet. You have eternity in your hearts, yet. But man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Solomon is saying God has a perspective that we don't have. We can't see the beginning from the end. We can only see our moment in time. We can only see our 50 years, our 70, 80, 90 years. So putting the whole verse together, okay, let me, let me help you understand this verse in context. Here's Solomon's big problem and why this verse is a key to understanding the whole book. Solomon is saying, God has designed this beautiful pattern. He's made everything beautiful in his time. Everything fits and makes sense from God's perspective. And he's hardwired in us the desire to see it, the desire to step outside and enjoy it with him and reflect on the pattern with him, but we can't see it. We're stuck in a time-bound system where Solomon can't see beyond death. And as far as Solomon is concerned, there's no way out of the grandfather clock. We have eternity in our hearts, but our destiny is death. 
That's what Solomon is saying. Now, some of you are thinking, but, 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 but. Everything on the other side of that but comes biblically after the book of Ecclesiastes. Don't worry about that. I'm fine without it. You, you, you tracking what I'm saying? This is where we get to the second lens by which we must remember to interpret this book. Interpret Ecclesiastes through the lens of progressive revelation. That means at this point in time during Solomon's lifetime, God had not yet made clear what his plan was for eternity. There were hints about an afterlife, but no certainty. Solomon's father, David, in some of his Psalms, he expresses some kind of vague faith. You will not let my bones see decay. But God had not revealed specifically how that was going to happen. So from Solomon's perspective, there's no certainty of anything beyond death. So he says this, you've put eternity in our hearts, but you won't let us see it. Can you actually hear Solomon beating his fists against the limitations of his own theology? I think that's what's happening here. So let's talk about Solomon's theology. Okay, really briefly. Solomon was reflecting good Jewish theology circa 1000 AD, i.e. a millennium before Christ came. So what did the Jews understand at that point in time? Well, we know because we have their sacred writings inspired by the Holy Spirit, God's revelation to them at that point in history. Here's what they knew. They knew that God was one. By the way, that was a huge revelation. Okay, all the other people around them, you know, it was polytheism and it was pantheism. And then God tells Abraham, I am one. One God, I made it all. Solomon knew that. That's reflected in his book. He knew that that one God was the giver of everything. He knew that that one God was sovereign and in control. That's reflected in this book. It's reflected in the poem that we just read. God's in control of all of this, right? But that's about as far as he could go. There were hints up to this point of a Messiah. Hints only. It wasn't until later with Isaiah that that picture would begin to become more clear through the the prophecies. Uh, There were some in the Psalms, but, but mostly a little bit later. So what I believe is going on here in these verses is Solomon is putting his own theology to the test. He's taking it as far as it can go. And and I hope this doesn't sound um, inappropriate to say it this way. I think even for Solomon, he recognized that it wasn't going as far as it needed to go. There had to be more. Like I think what Solomon is saying is, God, you've put eternity in my heart. There has to be more. Where is it? Let me see it. I can't see past my own death. Surely there's more. And he was right. His instinct was right. He just couldn't see it yet. Right? Now, let's apply this for just a minute. Any worldview or religion, apart from the gospel, apart from Jesus, apart from the good news of Jesus, any worldview or religion can only take you so far. So a Christianity without Christ can only take you so far. Judaism can only take you so far. Islam can only take you so far. Whatever worldview, Buddhism and other things, even secularism, atheism, without Jesus at this core can only take you so far. How, can, how far can religion take you? As far as Solomon went. Religion can take you to the idea that there's a God. Like creation cries out that there's a God. Religion can take you so far as to say that God must be in control, even that he must be good because there's beauty and pattern and all these kinds of things that he made. And and ultimately, if that's as far as you can go without a redeemer, then you have to say, I guess I just have to trust him even though my life stinks. I guess I just have to muster up enough faith that somehow God loves me even though it doesn't seem from my circumstances that that could be true. 
That's the wall of religion, ladies and gentlemen. And by the way, there's all kinds of truth in trusting in God even when you can't see the future, even when you can't see what happens next. I could apply that. It's biblical. It's inspired by Scripture. We don't have to necessarily go to Jesus to have a biblically true message, but not a biblically complete message. So through the progressive revelation of Scripture, we can go further than Solomon could. And so to read Ecclesiastes as a Christian, not as an Old Testament Jew, means to look at what Solomon was longing for in his heart that he couldn't see and allow it to point us to the answer that we can see. See, Solomon was looking forward to something through a very foggy, almost opaque lens. We can look back on that same something with much more clarity, although not perfect knowledge, of course. As wise as Solomon was, he obviously couldn't see beyond his own place in history. I want to fast forward you a thousand years. And I want us to look at the writings of another brilliant Jewish theologian. Had a lot in common with, with Solomon, actually a brilliant thinker, sort of philosophically oriented. His name was Paul. Didn't start out that way. He was first Saul, and he wrote an awful lot for us to reflect on. He wrote in the book of Galatians, and if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to wrap up here with this passage. He wrote in Galatians something that, as I read it backwards, I think he may have had Ecclesiastes in mind. Um, Paul would have known Ecclesiastes extremely well. You know, he was a brilliant Jewish scholar. He would have had most of Ecclesiastes memorized. He would have put us to shame in terms of our biblical knowledge, any of us in the room. And so here's what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, and I want you to think about it in the context of the dilemma that Solomon felt in his lifetime. So also we, Paul writes, Galatians 4, 3, while we were children, were held under bondage until the elemental thing, uh, to, I'm sorry, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. All right, let's pause here for a second. He's describing Solomon's dilemma exactly. When he says, when we were children, he's not talking about literal, like, you know, ninos, like little, like little, little guys, all right? He's saying, we, collectively, human beings, when we were children, i.e., when we were in our immature phase before God's revelation was given to us through Christ, word made flesh, when we were children, we were in bondage to the elemental things of the world, the basic understandings of the world. Now he goes to verse 4. But, now he's using that same word Solomon used yet. He's using but, same idea. This time it's beautiful because good news is coming following bad rather than the other way around. But, when the fullness of time came, isn't that interesting? He's tapping into that same theme of time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Verse 5 answers that so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. It continues, verse 6, because you are sons, present tense now, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Father, Abba, Dad. Here's what Paul is saying, and this should be a big wow for you. The longing for eternity that Solomon did not know how it would be filled. He only knew it was there. 
can now be filled by God himself through the Holy Spirit, through faith in Christ. How else would you ever get filled in eternal-sized hole in your heart other than the one who's eternal, other than God himself? He's the only one. So Pascal would later write, you know, you have a God-shaped vacuum, a God-shaped cavity that can only be filled by God himself. Augustine would write this, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Can you connect the dots from Solomon to Paul? It goes through Jesus. How is that tension in your life going to be put to rest between what Mandy described earlier as the eternal and the finite? Your own mortality, your own fear of running out of time, your own fear of using your time well, it finds its rest in Jesus. The gospel goes far beyond what any religion could go. Jesus is going to bust through the wall of religion that could only take, so, take us so far. And here's what the gospel proclaims. Because of what Jesus has done, and we use past tense now, living 2,000 years after his life, because of what Jesus has done, you will live forever. You will be eternal You are eternal, and you're going to be with him eternally. Because of what Jesus is doing now, present tense, and will do future tense, you will see all things made right. It will make sense. You will be able to see the beautiful pattern that Solomon knew was there, but he couldn't see beginning from end. You will. And and, and so will he, I believe, through his faith in what was still to come. We look backward, he looked forward. Because of the gospel, you will get the desire of your heart because you actually were made for eternity, as Solomon knew. Good news, your soul cries out for something lasting and permanent and meaningful. Solomon didn't have the answer. Jesus was the answer. It will be fully and permanently satisfied. The gospel proclaims through faith in Jesus Christ, there will be a day that you actually will climb out of the grandfather clock. Time will be no more. And all will be well. Just take a breath. How do you feel when you hear that clock stop ticking? And you think about eternity where time will be no more. Like for many of us in the room, it's just like this relief. Like, oh, the rest that I was made for, I will finally know. For some of you in the room, it's a fear. Like there's this uncomfortableness. If that's really true, what's going to happen to me when my tick stops? Now, Some of you need to put your faith in Christ this morning, and so I want to just apply this message. Here's the so what, you know. So what for those of you that have fear in your hearts right now when you think about eternity, and then a quick so what for those of you that have comfort and joy when you think about eternity. If God this morning has given you the capacity to put your faith in Jesus Christ, and I believe that is a spiritual work, if he has allowed you to understand and believe this morning, maybe for the first time, that Jesus died, lived the life you could not live, the life you were designed for but could never do it. He lived that life for you. And he died the death that you were deserving of 
because of your rebellion, because of your transgressions, great or small, you're a sinner and so am I. And that death was for you to bridge the gap between, it, between an eternal God and a finite human being. And then that resurrection of Jesus, that's the resurrection that you will follow through faith in Jesus Christ. It's like he's reaching back from the other side of the grave say, all who believe, come with me. And the invitation is there even this morning. All you have to do is express your faith through prayer. It's a conversation with God, not a formula, just a prayer. God, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is the answer. I put my faith in him. Now, here's the application for all of us who believe, okay? Whether you're putting your faith in Christ the first time this morning or it was a year ago or five or 10 or 15 or 20 or 82 years ago. Through this book, not Ecclesiastes, I'm talking about the 66 books of the Bible. We do know the end, don't we? I could take you there. We don't have time. We know what's gonna happen at the end, but what's still foggy for us what happens between now and then? And even for me personally and you personally, what happens tomorrow? What happens? Is this the year that cancer is going to come? Is this the year that I'm going to lose something important to me? Is this the year that a relationship I care about is going to be torn apart? Is this the year? Is this the year? Do you hear the fear and all of that? Let me ask you a question. If you know how it all ends, if you can trust God with eternity, why not trust him with now? Why not trust him with tomorrow? Why not trust him with this year? Some of you believe God has your eternity secure, but the current circumstances you're going through are undoing you. You don't know how to trust him for what's right in front of you. You say, I believe that I'll live forever, but I'm not sure about what's right here. And so this morning, what I want us to proclaim, and I'm going to proclaim it in a prayer, and then we're all going to sing it. We're going to proclaim it. And if you have the faith to sing these words, sing it as an act of faith this morning. We're going to declare, we can trust. We can trust. The God that saw fit to secure our eternity is the God who will see fit to keep us right in him now. No matter what. And I mean no matter what. Pendulum high, pendulum low. God's in control. Pendulum high, pendulum low. He's working all things together for good. You may not see it tomorrow or next year. You may not see it in your lifetime. But you will see all things made well through Jesus Christ. Let's trust him now for what he will do then. Let's pray. Our Father... The gospel message is that you have made us for eternity and there is an answer to that longing. Solomon couldn't see it yet. He could only hope. He could only stare off into the distance in what I believe is a mix of faith and confusion. You have given us more revelation we also have a mix of faith and confusion. And so, congregation, I think it's very appropriate for you just to acknowledge that. Your faith journey is not all upward. It is up and down and sideways and left and right. And there are times and seasons your faith is strong, and there are times and seasons your faith is struggling. But it's there would you acknowledge through your faith in Jesus Christ and the spirit that lives in you 
that you believe. You believe, even if it's a tiny little mustard seed size faith this morning, that is a gift of God. And it's founded on something solid. It is resting on something permanent. And so with whatever faith you have this morning, congregation, I'm going to ask us to sing the song and not just allow our lips to do, you know, moving and and mindless repetition, but may we actually engage the words of the song, which was chosen for this moment. And I pray that we would worship well because every word we speak points to fulfillment in Jesus Christ in his second coming. And may our faith be increased even as we sing in the name of Jesus.